I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. It's the 29th of October. This continues our extracts from the logbook of the whaler Swan of Hull in 1836. She's become trapped in the ice between Western Greenland and Baffin Island. The logbook is held in the archives of the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich. Saturday, 29th October. Northeasterly light winds and fine clear weather during the whole of these 24 hours. The strong breezes we have had lately has made not the least visible alteration in the ice. The thermometer this day has risen to 19 above zero which feels warm to us after experiencing so great degrees of cold the commencement of this month. Observations in that exact location made today reveal that still no ice has formed. Hello everyone, nice to have you aboard today and what an episode it is. On Monday I was lucky enough to be invited to a press preview of the new and amazing Turner exhibition at the Tate in London to talk to the curator of the Turner bequest at the Tate, David Blaney Brown. J.M.W. Turner, that's Joseph Mallard William Turner, 1775 to 1851, painted landscapes, history scenes, he painted them with watercolours, oils, he made prints, he was even an amateur architect. But what we're interested in more than anything else is that he was a painter of ships and the sea. He's one of the greatest of all British artists and certainly one of the greatest of all maritime artists. Yes, he painted landscapes and all sorts of different subjects, but he painted the sea more than any other subject, from his earliest sketches on which he built his reputation to his latest, most celebrated works. The sea was central to Turner, just as it was to the cultural life of the nation in the first half of the 19th century. Why are we at the Tate? Well, during his lifetime, Turner had a plan to leave the nation 100 finished paintings, which he kept in his studio and all over his London house. Imagine that. I've always wondered what he had kept in the downstairs loo. 
But for various reasons, following a legal challenge to his will, the nation got the entire contents of his studio and his house. That's around 400 paintings, finished and unfinished sketches, studies, experiments, as well as the well-known exhibited pictures. And the Tate got tens of thousands of drawings, watercolours and about 400 sketchbooks. Now, almost all of this is at the Tate. So if you're interested in Turner and his art of the sea, or more generally the way that ships and the sea were depicted in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, then it is essential that you pay this place a visit. And it's quite appropriate being here in the Tate as well. Turner lived just round the corner and he died in Chelsea just down the road in 1851. Of course, if you want to see his tomb, you need to go to St Paul's Cathedral, where he's buried almost alongside his great hero, Horatio Nelson. This latest exhibition based around Turner at the Tate is called Turner's Modern World. And I'm going to be talking to David about the maritime themed paintings that feature in the exhibition. We know that Turner was an excellent sailor. That's an actual quote about him from the past, that he was an excellent sailor. But before we begin, there's a little quote from a contemporary to leave you in no doubt as to Turner's interest, his abilities and the way in which he was perceived in the past. This is from Robert Leslie, son of the great artist Charles Robert Leslie. He was a, a contemporary artist of Turner. They saw each other regularly at Petworth House seat of George Wyndham, the Earl of Egremont. He was a great patron of the arts. And if you have a weekend free, I would urge you to go to Petworth. This is the quote. The sun had set beyond the trees at the end of the little lake in Petworth Park. At the other end of this lake was a solitary man, pacing to and fro, watching five or six fishing lines or trimmers that floated outside the water lilies near the bank. There, said my father, is Mr Turner, the great sea painter. David, thank you so much for talking to us today. Tell us about the inspiration behind this exhibition. Well, we have here at the Tate, we have the largest collection anywhere of Turner's work, and that puts a particular responsibility on us to uh, try and find fresh ways of interpreting it uh, from time to time. So, uh, you know, we do do Turner exhibitions. We, we have tended the last uh, decades or so to, to do a major one every sort of five, six or seven years, actually. Um, but we always try to pick uh, a fresh uh, angle. And we became aware the last few years that the one thing we'd never done was to do a show that looked across the whole range of Turner's modern and contemporary subjects, which seems extraordinary because he painted so many of them and, and many of them are quite well known and there have been um, an awful lot, there have been an awful lot written and many exhibitions done on particular aspects of Turner's sort of interest in modernity, be it his paintings of the sea or um, paintings of industry, um, for example, um, but there's never been, believe it or not, a show that actually looks across the whole spectrum of his modern subjects and that really brought out the fact that of all artists working at the time, certainly in Britain, he covered the widest range of contemporary subject matter 
And not only that, but in the process of doing so, uh, those modern subjects completely changed his style. So he started painting in a new and modern way. And he really, through doing this, um, almost invented a kind of template for a modern, socially, politically uh, engaged modern artist, and also to some extent um, helped to invent modern art. So that was really the thinking behind this show. The first painting we look at is called A Disaster at Sea, painted around 1839. And it's enormous. It's easily two and a half metres wide at the base and two metres tall. It's one of Turner's most dramatic canvases on the theme of maritime disaster. And it, it really is huge. There's a flurry of white, gold and reddish brown paint and a tangle of bodies, sea spray and wreckage. A single upright line dominates the right centre of the canvas. It's the mast of a ship with a figure clinging to it. And waving. It's believed that this was a transport convict ship for female convicts with some children aboard, wrecked off the French coast near Boulogne in 1833, it caused a terrible scandal because the ship's captain refused French help to save the women and children. He claimed he was only authorised to land them in New South Wales. Um, it's, it's an unfinished work. It's it's of a shipwreck. It's a, it's a theme he comes back to time and again. Why was this so relevant to him in his, his modern world? Well, I mean, shipwrecks interested Turner all his life. I mean, he, he, you know, he was fascinated by any subject that was sort of dramatic and terrible, and uh, quite a number of his paintings are about catastrophes of one kind or another. I mean, he seems to have thought that, um, you know, disasters and catastrophes, particularly those in which um, you know, human life is pitted against natural forces, they seem to have been almost a kind of metaphor for the rapidly changing and to some extent sort of uncontrollably changing times um, in which he lived. Um, but this one is particularly interesting because um, it uh, was never exhibited. There is a question about whether it's finished or not. It's certainly more finished than a number of his oil sketches, but it was never exhibited. So was it finished and then he decided not to exhibit it, or was it not exhibited because it was left unfinished? There are those sorts of formal and technical questions that arise about it. But more interesting is the question of whether or not it depicts an actual subject. And that question arises with some of Turner's other shipwrecks. Are they, you know, are they specific ships at specific dates? Or were they painted as a kind of synoptic image of maritime disaster? And I think some of them um, were, and some of them um, were known to be um, particular events. This one um, probably has two um, inspirations behind it one of which was seeing Theodore Jericho's painting The Raft of the Medusa, which of course was painted in Paris and depicts uh, an event uh, in contemporary French history as colonists going off to um, French Senegal and then um, you know, hitting a terrible ship, uh, their ship being wrecked and uh, many of them having to retreat onto a raft which um, you know, floated for days uh, in terrible sort of conditions and heat and so on. So, 
Uh, there were these poor people surrounded by water, but with no water to drink and no food to eat, and in the end they resorted to cannibalism and all sorts of horrors, and only a very few survived. And this was seen at the time as being a sort of comment on uh, French society and um, you know, rather sort of corrupt administration in France because the captain of uh, that ship um, was not really a properly trained sailor. He was somebody who got his job because of his um, aristocratic and upper-class connections um, and wasn't really qualified to be in charge of this ship. So it was a sort of comment on, you know, the, new on, France. on, on the new France, which simply wasn't working. And uh, in order to get a fresh response to that picture, which is huge, of course, uh, and could never travel nowadays, you couldn't get it into a plane, uh, you couldn't get it into a, a packed container, but nevertheless it was rolled up and sent to London um, for exhibition, and um, Turner almost certainly saw it and was fascinated by the subject and the composition and thought, you know, how can I do something like that? And that combined, it seems, with reading reports of the wreck um, of a ship called the Amphitrite, uh, which was a female convict ship, uh, on its way to Australia. It would have left from just down the road here, I've it discovered very recently. Very probably did, Milbank. because yeah. Millbank Prison in those days, uh, you know, it was a convict prison. And at that time, um, you know, it, it went sort of unisex later in the century, but at that time it was exclusively for female convicts. And uh, so it's very likely that um, those, those convicts, if not the ship itself, had set off originally um, from here, from, from this, the, the, you know, the basement of this very building. But um, uh, the terrible thing about the Amphitrite was that um, it uh, got involved in a dreadful storm off the French coast, and uh, the ship was clearly breaking up and, and wrecking. And um, the, the French offered assistance from the shore but the captain refused it because he said he was only authorized to land his convicts in New South Wales and um, he was afraid that if they were rescued they would simply escape and run off into France. And he didn't and, want to be held responsible. And he didn't want to be responsible for that. So he let the ship wreck and, you know, by a wonderful kind of natural justice, he, he was drowned himself. But so were a lot of the women and children. Only a handful of survivors, but three or I four. I think three, yeah. actually, yes. But not including him, not including the captain. Um, but uh, the cargo, um, if you can call it that, the passengers, uh, were women and children. And all the figures in this painting are women and children. And so... Uh, it's not a matter of women and children first, it's women and children not at all. Women, women and children not at all, <laughs> yeah. women and children last, absolutely. So and maritime safety was the theme he was certainly interested maritime in. Maritime safety, because that yeah. plays into his broader, uh, uh, you know, sort of humanitarian awareness and sympathies, which meant that, you know, he was sympathetic to things like Greek independence from Ottoman Turkey, he was clearly sympathetic to the political reform movement in, uh, in Britain at the time, prior to the 1832 Reform Act. Um, he was sympathetic to the um, slavery abolition movement, and there are other works in this room that, that play to those themes. Um, but more broadly, I think he had these sort of um, these concerns with uh, things like safety at sea, and uh, you know, pictures like this can be seen as protests against um, 
a rather sort of intransigent and um, old-fashioned attitudes. Um, and uh, it's possible uh, that I suppose that you know, if, if this is the Amphitrite, and it's an idea, it's a very compelling one, but there's no proof. I mean, Turner never wrote a letter or anything saying, you know, I'm painting the Amphitrite, but, it, you, you know, there are, the, it, 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 we can't find another case uh, of a disaster involving exclusively um, women victims uh, and, and their children at that time. And so it, it very probably is. But... You know, did he not exhibit it because somebody said, well, that really is such a sort of, you know, contested subject. Um, it might be better not to draw attention to it in, a, in an exhibition. Yeah. Um, it's a or, fascinating story there, isn't it? Or did he, uh, was he just for some reason not, not satisfied with the way the picture was working out and just abandoned it short of finishing it? I mean, we, we don't really know. The composition's similar to the Raft of the Medusa, oh, isn't absolutely, it? absolutely, because Do, it's it, a kind of pyramid. Does that happen elsewhere in his work? Does he, does he take compositions? Does he, does not he, really, no. no I, mean, I, he, I was surprised he, at that. He wasn't, um, I mean, he was such an original artist. He tended not to sort of swipe other people's compositions particularly, but I think the, the you know, the reference to uh, the Raft of the Medusa because of its um, political context and its background and so on may have been quite deliberate and another way of drawing attention to where he was positioning himself as you know, an artist with a, with a moral and ethical perspective uh, on recent and contemporary events. Um, but whatever it is, it's, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, this extraordinary sky. And it used to be called a fire at sea because, you know, some people think there are flames on the right-hand side. And you know, I don't know whether they're flames or flares. You know, the ship may have been sending up flares. Yeah. Um, but uh, whatever those things are, they, they, they sort of contribute to its drama and, you know, if you like, sort of sublimity. It does glow, doesn't it? It does glow, and it, it, it's, it's, it's an extraordinarily powerful thing. And the way the waves seem to merge into the sky, and the, you know, the clouds and the waves kind of blend together. And that's quite a, an amazing thing to achieve. As someone who's so brilliant at painting clouds, and also so brilliant at painting the sea, he really yes. does make, bring them together, doesn't he? What he wasn't brilliant at, and you know, nobody, nobody's ever pretended otherwise, was, was actually the, the painting of figures. And uh, you know, the figures here are quite sort of abstract and they're, they're more sort of suggested than rendered in any great detail. But Is that the reason it's been suggested it was unfinished? Uh, maybe, but I mean, I think you have to make allowances for Turner's figures always. You know, they're, they're, they're slightly odd. Yeah. But uh, the more of them there are in a picture, because this is very crowded, it, it matters less because you don't get individual ones kind of individualised in, in a way that you would if there were just two or three. Yeah, it's very different to the Battle of Trafalgar where you've got some very specifically carefully picked out individuals, haven't you? Yes. Because this are, is a mass of humanity. You know, they are to some extent portraits because when he painted the Battle of Trafalgar, uh, it was after he had actually gone on board the Victory at Sheerness when she came back for repairs after Trafalgar and some of the men, some of the crew, the marines and so on, were still on board. They hadn't yet gone on shore leave. And so he was able to inf interview them and collect information. And, uh, you know, the, the little sketchbook that we show here, not that particular page, but there are other pages 
where there are little sort of sketched portraits of some of the people he met on board and you know the, he identifies them by name and he says that they have you know good legs good teeth or sort of <laughs> features like that, that I'd like to be remembered for good legs that kind of <laughs> something that's never going to happen to me I'm afraid yeah. but, but you know something that kind of um, shows that he had actually met them you know uh, but of course with this uh, it's you know, he had to imagine it all, but I think he imagines it kind of through the lens of, of Jericho yeah. and the newspaper reports, because the Amphitrite episode was, um, was, was quite widely reported. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, and, and in, in great detail yeah, as well. I think the, the, the press really, really, really as something that was a, a scandal. Yeah. Um, and um, you know, he was very interested in 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 kind of um, uh, you know um, trying to find a new kind of standard of values in in contemporary life, and particularly things like life-saving technologies at sea, which, you know, he paints yeah. over here. Let's go, go, let's go through that, because I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by this. The second painting we look at is entitled Snowstorm, Steamboat Off a Harbour's Mouth, in 1842. It remains one of Turner's most famous paintings. It's smaller than the first painting, Disaster at Sea, perhaps a metre and a half wide and a metre tall, it shows a steamboat in rough water in the centre of the painting, surrounded by an enclosing and catastrophic snowstorm. It's a, a whirl of blues, greys and whites, with the side-wheel paddleship, a black and ominous presence in the centre, tilted from left to right at a very unnatural angle as it's tossed by the waves. The sea, the clouds, the snow and the rain swirl all around the ship as one. Very much fascinating. I could talk to you for three days non-stop, I think. Right, let's go through here then. So what have we got? What are we looking at here? We're looking at a steamboat in a snowstorm yeah. off a harbour, presumably somewhere on the uh, English coast. Um, Turner says it's off Harwich. 
in the title of the picture, but really who knows. And he says that uh, the um, author, by which he presumably means himself as the artist, but we'll come back to that because the use of the word author is quite suggestive because it might imply he's telling a story rather than painting something that actually happened. But he said the author was in this storm the night the Ariel left Harwich. But the trouble is nobody's found any record of a steamboat, and it is a steamboat, of course, uh, uh, operating out of Harwich at the time that this that would have been necessary for him to produce this picture. In other words, probably, uh, you know, in, um, in 18, the, you know, 1839, 40, 41, something like that. There's no record um, of a steamboat called the Ariel operating out of Harwich. And... Um, but he wants to place himself in the story. He wants to matters. place himself in the story, but at the same time, perhaps, give a clue that the story is a fantasy. Because, of course, Ariel was a water sprite. And in Shakespeare's Tempest, you know, Ariel promises to engender within the play something rich and strange, which is perhaps what Turner's sort of offering up here. It's certainly a rich and strange painting. It's magnificent, isn't it? So here so, he is fascinated with, with modern technology as well, as well as the natural world, all kind of combined. The, the other thing he claimed about this picture was that not only had he been on the boat during this storm, but that he'd had himself tied to the mast <laughs> to yeah. witness it. And we he believe says, that anyway. you know, I did not expect to survive, but, you know, if I did, I would have come back and painted it. The trouble is there are lots of stories about painters being tied to masts of, in storms and then are coming back to paint them afterwards. They go right back to Dutch 17th century painters, to Claude Joseph Vernet in 18th century France. And um, I love that. So, you know, I think one has to take all this with a, not one, but several quite big pinches of salt. Yeah, but if ever there was a painting created by someone who might have been tied to a mask, then this is pretty, pretty much it, isn't it? It's one of those stories that if it's not true, you want it to be true. Absolutely. Um, but and what's so fascinating is that in the title, it kind of um, juxtaposes very precise sort of maritime technological terms, like, you know, going by the lead, in shallow water, going by the lead. Let's just read this title now. So it's Snowstorm, Steamboat off a harbour's mouth, making signals in shallow water and going by the lead. The author was in this storm on the night the aerial left Harris. Yeah. So, of course, you know, the, the boat is in very shallow water. So, in order to try and make sure that it doesn't run aground, it's taking soundings to, to see what the depth is, which is a bit difficult to do, actually, if you're being chucked around in a storm of this kind of intensity. Very much so. Uh, so, you know, the, the, there's this strange sort of clash between what sounds very plausible, oh, this has got to be true because it's also detailed, you know, and then something that actually uh, doesn't add up um, and that, that, that seems to kind of be a kind of, it's creating a kind of mythology. Yeah, it's very playful, isn't it? The whole but kind of idea. It's also an autobiographical mythology, you know, but it's about, I suppose it's about trying to say to people, well, you know, even if it wasn't, even if I wasn't there, I know what these things look like, and you've got to believe that what I'm offering you here is, is a convincing depiction. Yeah, and and he's, I mean, the the paddle paddle ship there, that's that's a crucial part of it all. It's not a sailing ship he's chosen to depict at all. No, is it? it's a it's a paddle steamer, so it's a new and rather more strongly built boat, 
um, but still vulnerable to storms. But I suppose the question is, you know, it's a huge, terrible storm. Will it survive? Will it run aground? Will it break up? Will it, will it kind of beat its way through the storm? Um, and uh, all those are sort of left open as, as, as questions. I mean, it's fascinating having the, the paddle boat there, the steamboat, because that leads us to this, the painting over here, the, the extremely famous, the fighting Temeraire. And let's wander over here. The third painting we're looking at is Turner's The Fighting Temeraire. It's very difficult to do this painting justice in a few words. So here's a contemporary description. This is from William Thackeray one of the most talented and influential authors and critics of his time. The old Temeraire is dragged to her last home by a little spiteful, diabolical steamer. A mighty red sun amidst a host of flaring clouds sinks to rest on one side of the picture and illuminates a river that seems interminable and a countless navy that fades away into such a wonderful distance as never was painted before. The little demon of a steamer is belching out a volume. Why do I say a volume? Not a hundred volumes could express it. Of foul, lurid, red-hot, malignant smoke paddling furiously and lashing up the water around it. While behind it, a cold grey moon looking down on it, slow, sad and majestic, follows the brave old ship with death, as it were, written upon her. And this... I mean, also says so much about Turner's interest in, in modern technology, the modern maritime technology as well, with that, uh, what I think is a, is a beautifully depicted paddle ship um, towing the Temeraire. But it isn't, it isn't, because the engine's in the wrong place, the funnel's in the wrong place. Um, I mean, he's put the funnel in front of the engine and towards the bows, whereas, in fact, uh, the paddle steamer engines uh, uh, were... Um, uh, parallel with the paddle wheels and the funnel was usually slightly uh, towards the stern so but of course he's, he's that would mess with his composition it would mess it? with his composition so you know it would be far too close to the temeraire so he's just kind of moved it and when the engraver who 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 engraved this picture a few years later corrected turner's mistake and put the funnel in the right place turner said no 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 i want it there i knew what i was doing i want it put back where i where i put it in the first place even if it's wrong and um, so, yeah, he's, you know, I mean, it's an imaginative work of art. He, he probably never witnessed this. People used to think he did, but uh, I, I think now, now we think he didn't, but that he read about it in the newspapers and thought, well, again, you know, I, I mean, I wasn't there, but I ought to have been. Yeah. And this is just the kind of thing I ought to paint. But, and it's his, his view of the modern technology. He was, he was not against it necessarily. He was, um, he was sort of supportive of these new steam engines and all of this new industrial revolution technology? Well, he certainly used steamboats all the time and, you know, I mean, he went across to the continent on them, he went down backwards and forwards to Margate and the south coast on them. I mean, he loved the speed, uh, you know, that, that, that you could get to where you were going in a matter of hours rather than days. And um, the, the, the fact that they kind of democratised travel was something that's very much sort of plays into his way of thinking about the world, I think. Mm. Um, That's interesting. But at the same time... Well, in, in, that, in terms of being accessible to yes, everyone? Yes, accessible, cheaper. yeah, absolutely. But, it, you know, it's not just about the steamboat, is it? It's as much about the old ship, the Temeraire, 
So this is what's so wonderful about the picture, I think, that it's finally balanced. It's a picture about transition, you know, the, the uh, old age of sail is coming to an end. And that's sad in a way because, you know, this is the Temeraire, the hero ship of Trafalgar and so on, a trip, ship on which there had been a mutiny in, uh, in um, I think it was 1801. Um, don't quote me, it was, it was uh, very early in the Napoleonic Wars anyway, and the, uh, some of the, the crew aboard the Temeraire had mutinied because they didn't want to be sent to the West Indies where they would likely get ill or if they didn't get disease they'd probably be attacked by the French and so they mutinied but although they swore that they were loyal to king and country they were nevertheless as mutineers hung and so there's a tragic story behind the, the Temeraire as well as the sort of heroic action where she was one of the key ships at Trafalgar mm. and uh, he was obsessed, I think, about, about respecting history, respecting the absolutely. past. And, and in that respect, it's about, um, you know, what about the men who fought on her? How could we, how could we treat them so badly? Absolutely. And how could we treat her so badly? Yes, how, how could we? Because, of course, she was sold for the price of her timber, as old warships often were, uh, and, and sent to the breakers, when, in fact, apart from the victory, which, which of course, has survived, uh, she was virtually the only one of the great Trafalgar ships that were still surviving in the late 1830s. And there was a, a, um, a feeling that uh, more of these ships should have been preserved as a, as a historical record and out of respect to the people who had served on them. But, um, you know, for the Navy, it was all about the money. And, um, you know, they just wanted the wood sold off, the timber sold off, and to plough the, uh, the money back into commissioning new ships. So this is about the past and the future. And that, of course, is... You know, it plays out in the, the moon coming up, the, the sun setting. Everything in the picture is about time and transition. Yeah. And it brings us up to this, this wonderful uh, sketch here, just to the right of the Temeraire. So um, just, just hanging to the right of the fighting Temeraire, we have the, um, this, it's a, it's a sketch, the steamer and lightship, a study for the fighting Temeraire. I've never seen this before. And I, well, I mean, you, you probably wouldn't have done unless you would have happened to go and see an exhibition at the historic dockyard in Chatham about three, four years ago now, for which we restored this because um, it used to be written off as a complete wreck. It, it, was, it was full of mould, it had holes in it, it was filthy and um, thought to be unexhibitable. But uh, we thought, well, let's have a go at seeing if we can uh, restore it for display. And this is the result. I mean, it's unfinished, obviously. Uh, it's not in perfect condition, but it's perfectly legible. Yeah. But what's, and we know it's Turner's sketch for the Temeraire because he wrote on the back of it. Yes. If you flip it round, you can see, in, written in chalk in Turner's hand on the back of the canvas, first sketch for my Temeraire, um, and then there's, there are a couple of lines of poetry, most of which are illegible, but there is one line that is uh, readable, and it says, the light blushed red at her disgrace, which of course could either suggest the sunset that he ended up painting in the, the disgrace, of course, is that of the Temeraire himself. Um, it could either refer to the sunset, or it could refer to this, which is the Nor lightship. Yes. And so, of course, um, here, we're much further up the Thames, further towards Rotherhithe, where the Beetson's Breaker's Yard was. But here, we're, you know, we're sort of halfway between 
well, we're at the Nore, which is, you know, halfway between Sheerness and South End, basically. Yeah. Right, right the, near the mouth of the estuary, so a completely different spot. And here is uh, the lightship. Um, you can just see a sort of ghostly shape here, which seems to have been some sort of little, little bit of painting that's ultimately going to become the Temeraire, but then for some reason he's rubbed it out, maybe because he thought, well, actually, I won't put it that side, I'll put it that side of the tug, you know. Um, but, you know, you can see the, the broad outline of a larger ship, a sailing ship. Yeah, lurking behind what's and the tug. And then you've got the steam tug, but with the wind in the different direction. Um, and uh, so the, the sort of change, the evolution that, that happens between this and that is actually quite considerable but there is nevertheless that point of connection emotionally through the, through the verses, because he wrote different verse and showed it with the, the picture itself. Uh, so he was already thinking of this as a poetic subject. Um, and, uh, um, but of course in the, in the finished picture he got rid of the, you know, he got rid of the light ship obviously because he's further up river. Um, well, he's brought it right into the heart of London. He seems to have adopted the idea of something like a boy, which is floating in the water um, in the right foreground in the finished picture, and is possibly this object here. Yeah. Um, he has a boy in the foreground of another maritime painting. Yes, he does. Yes. He? I'm not yes. sure where there is. But I think that the key thing to realise here is, is that he's brought it right into the heart of London. And it was, it was big news, wasn't it? The Temeraire coming, coming oh, up. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's him, yes. it's embedding yes. him in the modern world. Yes, yes. Well, a, a changing world, a world that's, you know, where the past is giving way to, to the future, which is what happens there, you know. And, and, and um, I mean, this was Turner's favorite among all his paintings. He called it his darling and he refused to sell it and was determined that it would go into the National Gallery in Trafalgar Square, of course, which is quite significant. Yeah. Um, and uh, not far from St Paul's and if you want to go and see his tomb then you can well, go up to yes, St Paul's yes, <laughs> to yes. find him next to Nelson um, David thank you so much for your time it's been absolutely fascinating I'd like to walk around here talking, yes. talking to you about all of these yeah. very good, thank <laughs> you good. thanks Before we leave you, we have some important news. The November edition of the Mariner's Mirror Journal is out with its usual mixture of fascinating articles relating to naval and maritime history. It's been published since 1911. It's recognised as the world's leading journal of naval and maritime history. The content of the Mariner's Mirror includes research into matters relating to seafaring and shipbuilding. It is among all nations is research into the language, the customs of the sea, into all other subjects of nautical interest. It ranges from archaeology and ethnography to naval tactics and administration, merchant seafaring, shipbuilding, and virtually anything that relates to humankind's relationship with the sea. The articles in the journal this month, we have the Schlüsselfeld ship model of 1503 by Mike Jens Springman, uh, the Ronusvo incident of 1674 by Frank Fox. The Royal Navy's difficulties with implementing iron water tanks about 1815 to 1840 by Andy Plumley. Thomas Cave Childs, pioneer chaplain to female emigrants and the missions to seamen by Robert W. H. Miller. 
And finally, we do not want to be too hard on the Norwegians. Sterling balances and rebuilding the Norwegian merchant fleet 1945 to 1950 by Hugh Murphy. There's also all sorts of documents, notes and a great number of book reviews. If this sounds just like what you've been waiting for, then please join the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk. You don't just get access to this volume, you get access to all of the volumes. It's all online, going back well over a century. We've got tons of fab material coming your way soon on this podcast as well. If you want to know what's happening on a day-to-day basis, follow our excursions into the great modern world of the maritime past. Please follow us on our Facebook page where we're uh, logged on as the Society for Nautical Research or on Twitter in our abbreviated name of at Nautical History. Well, that's it for now, guys. Safe travels, everyone, and thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.